Chapters fifteen and sixteen of her mother's secret. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter fifteen. Lee's fiery trial. Lee was still walking up and down on the porch when Mr. Force rode up, followed by his mounted groom. He did not see Lee, who was partly shaded by the bare tangle of the climbing rose bushes on the trellis work. He threw himself out of his saddle, threw his bridle to his groom, and came up the steps. "'Ho, my boy!' he shouted, as he caught sight of the youth. "'Is that you, really? Welcome, welcome! I am delighted to see you!' And he seized Lee by both hands, and shook them heartily. "'When did you get home?' he continued, in the same cordial tone. "'Only this morning,' answered Lee, trying to command himself, for the sudden sight of Odalite's father, and the jubilant cordiality of his address, nearly upset the poor fellow's balance. Had his uncle no feeling, knowing, as he must know, that he, Lee, had come home joyfully expecting to marry Odalite, only to meet with a bitter disappointment? "'Come into the parlor! Come into the parlor! It is too cold out here. You look quite blue. Come in, and let's get a better view of you,' continued Mr. Force, leading the way into the house, followed by Lee. In the hall he threw off his riding-coat, drew off his long India-rubber boots, and then entered the parlor, which was on the opposite side from Mrs. Force's sitting-room. It was a medium-sized, wainscoted room, with two front windows and one side window. It was carpeted and upholstered in dark crimson, and had a large, open wood fire burning in the ample chimney. "'Take that chair, I'll take this,' said Mr. Force, pushing one armchair toward Lee with his foot, and throwing himself into the other. Thus they sat in opposite corners. "'Now tell me, when did your ship get into port?' "'Yesterday morning, and I hurried immediately down here to see—to see my—to—to meet the bitterest disappointment of my life, Uncle Abel,' said the youth, faltering, hesitating, but determined to come to the point at last. "'Oh, come, come. Tut, tut, tut. She was only a child when you went away, if you are referring to Odalite,' said Mr. Force, in a cheery tone. "'Yes, Uncle Abel, I am referring to Odalite.' "'and speaking of the most heartbreaking disappointment "'that ever crushed a man,' said the youth. "'Nonsense, dear lad. "'You know nothing of heartbreaking troubles of any sort, "'or you would not magnify this one. "'You will get over it in a month.' "'It was the cherished love and hope and faith of years. "'A dream, my boy, of which this is the awakening. "'A dream in which I, too, shared. "'Lee, lad, you must know that I am just as much disappointed as you can be. "'It was the desire of my life that you and Odalite should marry.' and in time succeed us here, and make the two great manors of Mondreer and Greenbushes into one mammoth estate. I am disappointed in this, and if I ever permitted myself to grieve over the inevitable, I should feel very sorry for myself as well as for you. It was so sudden, so unexpected, why her last letter to me, received at Spezia, and written not two months ago, was so kind. She must have changed very quickly, said poor Lee. "'No, I think it must have been gradually. "'I think she was deeply infatuated before she realized her state. "'And then I know she struggled, poor dear child, "'struggled until she nearly broke her heart, "'to keep faithful to you and to please me. "'It was only from her suitor that I heard at last of her distress. "'Then, as she meekly left her fate entirely in my hands, "'I conquered my own ambition, "'and told the child to follow the dictates of her own heart. "'What else could a father do?' But even now, though she has her own way in this matter, she is not content. She frets about you, Lee. Oh, 
and this is the gentle, tender creature whom I could reproach so fiercely, dog that I was, said Lee, who seemed to feel the necessity of confession to poor Odalite's parents. You, Lee? Yes, I, when she made me understand that she had broken her engagement with me, and had promised to marry that Englishman. I tell you, Uncle Abel, I went on at her like a raving maniac. Satan took possession of me. I could bang out my own brains against the wall when I think of it. Don't. It would spoil the paper, and do nobody any good but the coroner and the undertaker. It was inevitable that you should have gone into a passion, Lee. Your provocation would have upset a doctor of divinity, if it had taken him by surprise. Think no more of it, my boy. I dare say she has forgiven it. She, the blessed child, she never once resented it. That is what kills me. She never opened her lips in self-defense, or self-excuse. Oh, I could beat my— Pray, don't, I say. It would make a mess in a tidy parlor. I dare say she thought she was without any excuse for disappointing you and me of our pet plan, and all for the sake of that puncheon of an Englishman. But girls are weak vessels. I never knew one worth having, except my own noble wife. But perhaps she has spoiled me for appreciating any other woman, even my own daughter. Yes, Aunt Elfrida is the most excellent of the earth, I do believe, assented Lee, but without the interest in the subject which the words might have implied. THE MOST PERFECT WOMAN IN PERSON, SOUL AND SPIRIT, THAT EVER WAS CREATED. WHO IS THE MOST PERFECT WOMAN IN PERSON, SOUL AND SPIRIT, THAT EVER WAS CREATED? INQUIRED A VOICE BEHIND THEM. MR. FORCE TURNED AND SAW COLONEL ANGLESIA APPROACHING THEM. BOTH THE GENTLEMEN, WHO WERE SEATED, IMMEDIATELY AROSE. MR. FORCE PRESENTED HIS YOUNG RELATIVE TO HIS GUEST. THE MIDSHIPMAN AND THE COLONEL BOWED COLDLY AND STIFFLY, WHILE THEY EYED EACH OTHER WITH ILL-REPRESSED ANTAGONISM. "'Who is the most perfect woman in person, soul, and spirit that ever was created?' again queried Colonel Anglesia, as the party seated themselves around the fire. "'My wife,' answered Abel Force. Angus Anglesia threw back his head and laughed aloud, then recovering himself, said, to one who, unseen, had just joined the group, "'I beg your pardon, Mrs. Force. I really could not help laughing, to hear your good husband praise you so, unconsciously, before your face, you know.' "'I did not know that Elfrida was there,' said Mr. Force, half offended at, he knew not what, something that he vaguely perceived, but could not specify. Mrs. Force had turned deadly pale, and her lips were compressed, and her blue eyes glittering as she took her seat. It was fortunate at that moment that Miss Meek and the two younger girls entered the parlor, simultaneously with the ringing of the dinner-bell. Mrs. Force arose and took the arm of the young midshipman, and led the way to the dining-room, followed by the party." "'I hope Miss Force is not indisposed,' said Colonel Anglesia, missing Odalite from her place at the table. "'She does not feel very well, but may perhaps join us in the drawing-room,' said Mrs. Force, as they all took their seats around the board. Mr. Force sought to enliven the meal with gay conversation, but signally failed. Colonel Anglesia affected to treat the young midshipman with great condescension, but equally failed, for Lee ignored and disregarded him to the verge of actual rudeness.' either not hearing his remarks, or else answering them in monosyllables, and giving all his attention to his little cousins, Wynnette and Elva, who were seated by their own choice, the one on his right, and the other on his left. Mrs. Force did not attempt to converse, and Miss Meek, chilled by the social coldness around her, kept silence. In less than an hour the uncomfortable meal was over, and the party withdrew to the drawing-room. Lee then arose to bid them good-night. 
"'No, no, Leonidas, my lad, don't go, not yet, at least. "'Wait, I have something to say to you. "'Excuse me, friends. "'Come into the library with me, Lee,' said Mr. Force, "'rising, drawing the arm of the younger man within his own, and passing out. "'When they reached the little book-room in the rear of Mrs. Force's sitting-room, "'and which the family dignified by the name of library, "'Mr. Force said, "'Sit down, Lee,' and taking a seat himself, pushed another to his companion. "'Now, Lee,' he said, when both were seated, "'where were you going?' "'To Greenbushes, of course. I ought to be there to look after my property.' "'Yes, yes, but Beaver don't expect you to-night, and has not got things ready for you, and besides, it is too late. Don't leave us to-night, Lee. Don't hurry away. Your doing so would hurt Odalite. She would think she had driven you away. Well, then, I will not go. I have hurt Odalite enough.' If my going would hurt her, I would stay here, and stand that ruffian's insolence until he takes her away. I beg your pardon, uncle, for calling your intended son-in-law a ruffian. Oh, fire away, my lad. You have every right to swear. I feel like joining you. His insolence in laughing when you praised my aunt so much. But I did not praise her above her merits. Why, just look at her, Lee, nearly forty years old, and the very handsomest woman in the country— and as noble and perfect in mind as in person. Yes, and he laughed. Look here, Lee, you know he was a brother officer of my wife's brother, and an old friend of hers. Now, I'll tell you what, I often think that he was a rejected suitor of Lady Elfrida Glennon, and the memory of it makes him sore and sarcastic at times. Many little things in their intercourse makes me think that sometimes. Bear with him, Lee, as I shall do, for Odalite's sake." Now shall we return to the drawing-room? If you please. CHAPTER Sixteen: LEE'S MYSTERIOUS MOVEMENTS Lee remained at Mondreer, only riding over to Greenbushes every day to superintend the repairs and refurnishing of his house. He never met Odalite, except at meal-times, and then their chairs were so placed that neither need look in the face of the other. Odalite's seat was near the head of the table, Lee's near the foot, on the same side, they merely greeted each other on entering the dining-room, and that was all. Mr. and Mrs. Force treated their young relative with the most delicate consideration. Colonel Anglesia treated his defeated rival with offensive condescension. Lee tried to ignore the colonel's existence, and found his greatest comfort in the company of his little cousins. Their warm, sincere love and sympathy was as balm to his bruised heart. The children had successfully passed to their home examination by the father, and their holidays had already commenced, though it was a full week before Christmas, and thus they were able to give their sailor cousin a great deal of their society. The mother and father did not interfere. They were glad enough of any comfort or solace they could afford Lee, to occupy or amuse his mind, and keep his fingers and his scalping-knife off Anglesia's hair. The children used often to walk over with Lee to Greenbushes in the morning, spend the whole day there with their cousin, and return with him in the evening. But in consideration for him, they never alluded to the approaching wedding. They only kept their eyes and ears open, like the sharp little foxes that they were. One day, however, when all three were walking through the wintry woods on their way to Greenbushes, Lee himself, for the first time, alluded to the subject— "'How do you like your intended brother-in-law?' he inquired. "'What, that British beer-barrel? "'I mean that English gentleman? "'I hate him. "'I detest him. "'I loathe him. "'I abhor him. "'And if there is any stronger word in the English, "'or any other language, I that him!' exclaimed Wynnette, 
clenching her fist and grinding her teeth. "'I say my prayers three times a day not to hate him. "'But, oh, dear,' sighed little Alva. "'And I'll tell you what it is, Lee. "'She hates him worse than I do,' added Wynnette. "'My child, she? Who?' exclaimed Lee, "'starting and coming to a dead halt. "'Why, Odalite?' "'Wynnette, do you know what you are saying, dear?' demanded Lee, in great agitation. They had now reached Chinkapin Creek Bridge, and all had come to a stop. "'Do you know what you are saying, Wynnette?' anxiously repeated Lee. "'Yes, indeed I do, and I know it is true. Odalite hates and scorns and loathes Colonel Anglesea,' said the child, speaking in her intense way, with doubled fist, set teeth, and gleaming eyes. "'Did she tell you so?' "'Why should she tell me? No, she never did. But all the same, I would pledge my immortal soul upon it that she does. "'Why do you think so, then?' "'Why? Now, Lee, where are your eyes and your common sense? I tell you, disgust and abhorrence take possession of Odalite the minute he approaches her, and stick out all over her like the spikes on a hedgehog. "'Bah! Bah! Cha! Chiss!' hissed the intense little creature. "'My Lord, if I thought so!' "'You had better think so. "'I tell you, I believe if she is made to marry that be—I mean that person, "'something awful will happen.' "'Made to marry, my dear Wynnette. "'Why, she wants to do so.' "'She don't, she don't, she don't. "'But she told me so herself. "'I don't care what she told you, she don't.' "'My dear, please to remember that Odalite never tells what is not true, "'and she told me that she wanted to marry Anglesea.' "'Yes, I know. She told me so, too, not ten minutes before you came home. "'But how can I believe she does when I see that it is breaking her poor heart "'and crazing her brain, and killing her? Tell me that.' "'Oh, child, I can tell you nothing,' groaned Lee. "'I am even more mystified than you are. "'That this girl, who is truth itself, "'should insist that she wants to marry a man "'whose very presence fills her with loathing "'is a mystery I cannot fathom.' The children were by this time seated on a log at the end of the bridge, the same log on which, two weeks before, Odalite had been seated when she was surprised by Colonel Anglesea. Lee stood near them, leaning with his back against the railings, and his head bowed in deep thought. Suddenly he started, and threw his hand to his head. "'What's the matter, Lee?' inquired little Elva, Why Wynnette stared. "'A remembered dream, or vision, that came to me three times on my homeward voyage,' replied the young man, gravely. "'Oh, tell us!' exclaimed both the children in duet, with all their childish interest in the marvellous excited to the highest pitch. "'It is a vision of midnight on mid-ocean, the blackness of darkness above, below, around, beneath. Suddenly, into this opaque darkness, glows a spark of red light. It increases, spreads, and shoots upward, revealing— a ship on fire, showing the deck crowded with dark figures. Only one fearfully distinct form, the form of Odalite. She stands on the top of the bulwarks, clothed in white raiment, with her arms raised on high, her face turned upward, her hair streaming, flames around and above her, the ocean beneath. I heard her call to me, speak to me. Lee, I do not want to leave you, but see, I must take the water to escape the fire." And suddenly, as if the burning ship were swallowed up in the midnight sea, the vision vanished. Three times I had this vision, children, and it troubled me, but in the excitement of my homecoming I forgot it until now. Now I remember it, and receive it as a warning. 
"'I can read it! I can read it!' said Wynnette, with her weird, eldritch look and tone. "'I can read it, and it is just what I believed before I heard of it. Odalite is driven somehow, by some one or some thing, not only to marry, but to want to marry Anglesia to save herself from some evil. Oh, I feel it even in my bones, and if she is driven quite into the marriage, I tell you there will be some awful tragedy like that of the Bride of Lammermoor. Anglesia will be found in the morning with his wizen slit, I mean with his throat cut, and Odalite will be sitting in the ashes gibbering and mopping and mowing like an idiot. "'Oh, oh, oh!' cried little Elva, covering her face with her hands and shivering through all her small frame. "'See, you have frightened the child, Wynnette. You should not say such wild, extravagant things, my dear,' said Lee rebukingly. "'I said it to fetch you. I mean I said it to make an impression on you,' retorted Wynnette. "'Oh, Lee, can't you be young Lochinvar and carry her off from the wedding?' pleaded little Elva. "'Hardly, my darling.' The fair Ellen of young Lochinvar was willing to be carried off, and Odalite is not, which makes all the difference, you know. Oh, but she would be glad afterward, persisted Elva. Oh, hush, Elf, he won't try it. The age of chivalry is past, indignantly replied Wynnette. We will walk on, said Lee. And they resumed their tramp toward green bushes, where they arrived in about another hour, and where they spent the day returning home in the evening. "'Oh, Lee, sweet, dear, darling Lee, won't you please carry off Odalite, just like young Lochinvar did fair Ellen? Oh, please, Lee, it would be so easy. You could have George saddled and brought round to the front door. George is the fastest and the strongest horse in the stables, and you could snatch her up and run out with her and be in the saddle and away before folks could get over their surprise. And she would be glad afterward, I know she would.' "'Weren't the Sabine woman glad afterward that the Roman youth had carried them away?' argued Elva, fresh from her school history. "'And, Lee, you could do it very easily.' "'Yes, I could, very easily,' grimly assented the youth. "'And you will, won't you?' "'No, my precious, it would not do. Not in these days, darling. With all the examples of romance, poetry, and history to inspire me, I must not do it. If I were to attempt such a feat, I would be a felon, not a hero, my pet.' "'Then I wish you were a felon,' was the astounding conclusion of Elva, as she passed him by and entered the house. From this day, Lee watched Odalite more closely, and he discovered that, on all occasions when she was in company with Anglesia, she treated him with open contempt, except when her father was present. Then, indeed, she seemed to put constraint upon herself, and to treat her betrothed with decent respect.' Was this done to avert any suspicions of the real state of her feelings from her father's mind? From this day, also, Lee was often absent on errands that took him from the neighborhood, and sometimes kept him overnight. And when interrogated by his uncle, or any member of the family, as to the business that called him away, he would give evasive answers. But all noticed that Lee's spirits were much improved, so that he was more like the ruddy, jubilant Lee that he had been in the past— than at any other time since his return home. He walked with a light step, spoke in a brisk tone, sang snatches of sea-songs, and winked knowingly at the wondering children. Meantime, the wedding came on apace. End of chapter 16